It's good to see everybody. My name is Pastor Joshua this morning and, uh, and every morning after that. <laughs> I am nothing but a communicator. Don't try this at home. I'm a professional communicator. So anyways, uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Today around the world, in every Christian tradition, uh, today is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is the celebration, really, and the remembrance that Jesus uh, came, came into Jerusalem for the final week before he would die on the cross. And he came in in triumph. All the crowds welcomed him and praised him and laid palm branches in his path. And so uh, most churches at least take the time on Palm Sunday to maybe either talk about that story or... Um, uh, or, to, or to allude to it or something like that. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Palm Sunday. And, you know, we ask ourselves, what do we get out of, this, uh, out of this story? Jesus coming into Jerusalem for the final week of his life before his resurrection and so forth. I mean, really, what is the point of us remembering this, this story? And the point really is this. It's, a, it's the good news, bad news of this story that the crowds welcomed him coming into Jerusalem uh, what we call his descent into the valley of humiliation. Um, and as they welcomed him and praised him, they were not prepared for what his real mission was. They had no idea that his real mission was to die on the cross. The crowds were not prepared for the ultimate um, death of Jesus on the cross. The disciples were not prepared uh, for the death of Jesus on the cross. Many of the disciples, by the time uh, Jesus died on the cross, many of the disciples left him. I mean, they just fled from him. Um, It's the ultimate story about one day I'm for you, and then the next day I'm not. The crowds praised him as they entered, but ultimately they would turn on Jesus and cry out, crucify him. Uh, Let's get rid of this guy. And so the issue really for us is, how do they get like that? I mean, what led from one minute they're praising Jesus to the next minute they're yelling out, uh, crucify him? How can we not be like the crowds? That's kind of today's message. We don't want to be like the crowds where we're praising Jesus with enthusiasm one minute, and then the very next minute we're absolutely, he has nothing to do with us at all. Uh, How do we do that? So today I'm calling it the survivor's guide to your Easter week. I want to help you go into Easter week prepared to worship Jesus, not with one day or with one worship service, but with your life, to give your life to him, to follow him all the way to the cross, to not be like the crowds, but, but to sustain this worship and to be ready for Easter week. And so what I want to do... And what I did the first service is just go through Mark 11, and we'll go as far through Mark 11 as we can, and then when I run out of time, I'll just simply stop. And so it's very exciting. Like, when is he going to stop? On time. Can I get an amen? Amen. So let's start, and let's look at the triumphal entry of Jesus, and let's just start at verse 1. If you have a Bible, Mark 11, verse 1, and let me just start reading it. It says here, Now when they, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. 
Now, it's interesting that what happens is, this is exactly what happens. The disciples go in. They get the cult. There are people there like, why are you taking the cult? And they're like, these are not the droids you're looking for. And then, like, they take the cult, and then they bring it back to Jesus, and then they put Jesus on, on this cult. And a cult is a, is a young donkey, an, un, an unbroken donkey, a donkey that's never been ridden before, right? And the reason why Jesus is doing this is Jesus is interested in fulfilling prophecy about his life because all the way back hundreds of years before his life there was a prophet named Zechariah and in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 it says this pull up that slide if you could I got my glasses on I'm ready Ooh, look at that okay and in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 it says rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout aloud O daughter of Jerusalem Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a donkey. So here's what's happening is Jesus is fulfilling prophecy about himself, and he's putting on display, I am the promised Messiah. I am the Savior of the world. My purpose in coming into this world is to be the fulfillment of the Savior of the world. And it's a really great thing. So he's fulfilling. But note what Zechariah says. Zechariah says that the king would come in, that the Messiah king would come into Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey. And this is very interesting because if you and I were Jesus and we had the powers he had, you know what, and we were, we were God in the flesh, the way we would come into Jerusalem is not on a donkey, humble and lowly. We come in on a war horse. Can I get an Amen. I'd be, rocking the, I'd be rocking the big fat stallion, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm Jesus, you know what I'm saying? That's why I'm not Jesus, see? <laughs> but it's very interesting because in the year 332 B.C., a guy by the name of Alexander the Great conquered all this territory, and he conquered Syria, and then he came down and conquered Gaza, and he came into Jerusalem, and as he was coming into Jerusalem, he came in on his prized stallion, his war horse, And as he came into Jerusalem, all the priests and all the people went out to Alexander the Great. And they were like, here's this great conquering hero, Alexander the Great. And they yelled out his name 300 years before Jesus. They yelled out his name. And then he went into the center of Jerusalem and he went into the temple and he made sacrifice to God in the temple. And what he was saying was, I have come to conquer the world through war. I have come to conquer the world to spread Greek culture through warfare and through conquest. And Jesus is a contrast, isn't he? Because he says, I come on a donkey to tell you that I can't, I, I'm going to conquer the world through sacrifice, through humility. I'm going to conquer the world through love. I'm going to conquer the world through giving my life. And my purpose is not war. My purpose and my mission in this world is to establish peace between human beings and God. If you can remember that basic mission of Jesus, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you can remember, he came to die in our place and to establish peace between us and God. Listen, you will be ready for Easter this week. But if somehow your Christianity is a triumphant kind of uh, cavalier kind of war horse kind of dominating us versus them kind of spirituality, then you're going to miss the message, the, the humility, 
the willingness. Jesus is saying, I am willing. When he, when he, when he got that cult and got on that cult and, and went through Jerusalem as they're praising him, he was saying, this is the type of king I am. I'm a king who serves. I'm a king who gives my life. And that is the key to life. The key to life is not conquering through hatred or war. The key to life is conquering through love. And meeting evil not with evil, not not trying to put out the fire of life with fire, but to put out the fire of life with love. So Jesus, going back to the story, Mark 11, let's pick it up in verse 7. It says that they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and, and sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches, get it, palm branches, leafy branches, that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father. Hosanna in the highest! They're shouting and they're yelling, and, and I mean, the scene is out of control, fired up. Everybody say, fired up. Fire. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, which this story is also recorded, there's a word. It says that the whole city was stirred up, and that word for stirred in the Greek stands for earthquake. So it felt like people, there's so many people, four million pilgrims in Jerusalem for Passover, and they're so fired up about Jesus that it literally feels like the place is shaking because they're so fired up. I don't know how many of y'all have been to like a massive, huge sporting event, maybe an NFL football. Any Bears fans been to a Bears game when they've won? Sorry, okay. Oh, back in the talk. Okay, and so you've been at a major sporting event, and when the whole crowd is going crazy, and it feels like what? It feels like the place is moving. I remember my wife and I, we went to a Boston Red Sox game back in the day, and uh, at Fenway Park, I know I'm so cool, I'm just, I'm really cool, and we were there, we were 11 rows back off of home plate, and I remember it went into extra innings, and Big Poppy, who I liked back in those days, I don't like him anymore because of the World Series, but anyways, and he steps up, they were playing the Baltimore Orioles that night, night game, packed, Fenway Park. He stepped up. He looked towards us, winked. Dude winked at us like, I got this. Steps up, hits the game-winning walk-off home run. I was hugging people I didn't even know. I mean, we were going nuts. And it felt like Fenway was going to crumble because it was like an earthquake. You know what I'm saying? Now, if you've ever been in that kind of situation, that is what's going on when Jesus is coming in. And we ask ourselves, well, why, why was the crowd so fired up about Jesus? Well, there's a lot of good answers for that. First of all, he could feed thousands of people with loaves and fishes. So he's like a free supermarket. That's when you get start getting fired up. Like, I don't have to buy food anymore because I'm with Jesus, right? But the other thing he did is he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Like, Lazarus came out of a tomb alive after being dead. And these people are going, we got free food with Jesus. We cannot die with Jesus. This guy is a home run. He's a touchdown. He's going to take us to places we've never been before. And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. The praise is really good, but we see in this praise and we see words that point to their problem 
and things that we need to avoid. Look at verse 9 where it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that phrase, they're quoting from Psalm uh, 118, verse 25. Psalm 118, verse 25 and following, where it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So they're quoting scripture, which is like, yes. I mean, that's a fist pump. Right on, Bible. We love Bible. But the next verse, verse 10 It says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Now, you can't find that phrase anywhere in the Bible. That's not a psalm. That's not a prophet. That's that's from nothing. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And therefore, it is an interpretation of Psalm 118 in light of the things Jesus has done. And what they're saying is, is that Jesus' mission is political. That Jesus is going to restore their nation to the golden age of when David was king. And that Jesus is going to bring national prominence and dominance and supremacy. And that is why they are praising Jesus. They're saying, you are going to destroy all of our enemies. You're going to take Rome out. You're going to take all those heathen, Gentile, uncircumcised nations out. You're you're going to bring in our nation. And that was their problem. And for human beings, that's a big problem. Because you know what? We want God, oftentimes, to do political things. We want God to restore us. They hated the political realities. They were being overtaxed by Rome. They were living in occupied territory. They were, they were living in this situation That was politically just not very fun. And they wanted Jesus to take care of their political problems. Now, beloved, can I tell you, there is a Christianity in our country that is more political than it is spiritual. Did you know that? And they want Jesus to fix all of their their issues. They want Jesus to go into Springfield, Illinois, and to take these people out who are overtaxing us. Can I get an amen? And sometimes we forget the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus is a reminder that our our problem with our world is not politics. The problem with our world is people. And Jesus came to change people's hearts. Jesus came to die for sin, to be a sacrifice for sin. Now before I really begin to apply this, look at that last phrase in verse 10. Which is my favorite. Love this phrase. It says, Hosanna in the highest. And that word Hosanna, what it means is, Lord, save now. That's what Hosanna means. When, when you say Hosanna, you're saying, Lord, save now. But then when it says Hosanna in the highest, what it's saying is, Lord, use your highest resources. Use your ultimate power to meet my deepest needs. Save me now and bring your very best to save me. Hosanna in the highest. It's a great prayer. It's a great prayer. And and that's what Jesus does. Jesus came into this world to give us God's very highest resources to meet our deepest needs. But the crowd thinks that their deepest needs are not personal but political. They think that their Lord... Bring your highest resources to meet my deepest needs. And my deepest needs is my nation's in trouble. My country's in trouble. Bad guys have taken over. 
And what Jesus came is to meet a deeper need, not politics. We could, we could also, though, look at it differently. We could look at it not politically, but we could look at a popular culture. There is crowds that are willing to worship Jesus. They're willing to pray, Lord, take your highest resources and meet my deepest needs. And my deepest needs is popular culture needs. Like I need, I need divine design. I need, des- I need cool design in my life. I need material things. I need to be blessed with a nice house or a nice car. Or, or I, need, I need God, Hosanna in the highest. I need you to, to give me a promotion. I need you to give me a raise. I need a new job. I need a, I need a new this. And we think that our deepest need sometimes is material in nature. Now, we as a church, I don't think we have a lot of people who struggle with that. But there is. I, I know you hear these preachers. I know you've heard this version of Christianity, a prosperity gospel. A gospel that says that God serves your needs. God wouldn't want any of his children to be poor. God wouldn't want any of his children to go without. There's a strong commercial kind of commerce-oriented marketplace popular culture. I need cool design. I need God to meet these kind of superficial needs in my life. Hosanna in the highest. God use your highest resources to meet these deepest needs. Listen, Jesus didn't come into this world to give us a new couch in our den. Jesus didn't come into this world to give us a nice living room or a nice backyard. Jesus came into this world to give us a new heart. Jesus came into this world to give us God's kingdom and to reconcile us to God. Jesus came to give us the riches of heavenly things, not the riches of earthly things. And if you ever hear any preacher say to you that Jesus exists to meet your popular culture, uh, cool design needs, then you are listening to a false message of Christianity. Politics is not our deepest needs. Popular culture is not our deepest needs. But here on a more personal level, let me bring this up. Sometimes crowds come to Jesus and they say, Hosanna in the highest. God, use your highest resources to meet my deepest need. And my deepest need is to get some answers to why. Some people are like, I'm perfectly willing to worship you, God, if you would just answer some of my why questions to life, some of the mysteries of suffering and, and loss and, and deep pain, and if you would just only give me some answers to why, to, why did I get abused, why, why did she do this, why, why did they lose their life, some of these deeper issues, if you would only answer that, then I would worship you, because that's my deepest need. Some of us, we live in this world, and we're just more sensitive to others than others to the suffering. And, and we have a hard time reconciling a powerful, sovereign God and human suffering and his love. And how can you reconcile the powerful, sovereign God who's also a loving God, and yet he allows suffering and pain? And we go, why? Hosanna in the highest. Save me now with some real answers on why this could happen. Those are sometimes valid questions, very valid. But let me tell you, frankly, it is not your deepest need. Your deepest need is not to have the answers to all the issues of suffering. You can have a great relationship with God through Christ, have peace with God even when you don't have all of the answers. Jesus came into this world to reconcile us to God, not to give us every answer to all the mysteries of life. And sometimes life requires childlike faith. Even though you haven't given me the answers yet, I will still follow you. I will follow you all the way to the cross. There are crowds of people 
who don't believe, who stop following Jesus, who stop following God because of the why questions of life. Listen, the thing to do for us is when we say highest resources, deepest needs, we need to remember, we need to leave the crowds. We need to leave the spectacular religion. We need to leave the spectacular celebration. And we need to go to the Roman centurion in Romans chapter 15. Let me put it up there. Romans chapter 15 and verse 39. And there is where we will experience God's highest resources meeting our deepest needs. Romans chapter 15 verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. The least likely candidate to become a Christian, a Roman centurion, all by himself, seemingly, The disciples have left, the crowds have left, everybody's gone. Jesus, in shame, has nothing on his body. He is completely stripped of all of his clothes. He's lying, he's up on that cross, he's dying. By his stripes, we are healed. And the Roman centurion gives us the secret to surviving Easter week, which is to go to the cross and there at the foot say, you are the son of God. And this is the highest resource that God has ever given me, that this very Son of God in the flesh would die in my place. That's your deepest need. Bring your sin, bring your brokenness, bring your decay, bring your confusion, bring your past and go there and say, you are the Son of God. It's not in his outward glory when he looks great and he's riding an animal into, it's when he's up there on that cross. And by believing in him, there's healing there. There's healing. Second Corinthians, one of my favorite chapters on this very point, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and following. You want a survivor's guide to your Easter week. You want to go in worshiping and sustain worship. Meditate on these verses. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and following. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. You know, are you dead yet? Did you realize that Jesus died so we can die and then come up to new life? All have died in Christ And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When it says we no longer regard Christ according to the flesh, it's saying we no longer regard him as our political solution, as our popular culture solution, as our, as our personal pain solution. He is a spiritual solution to us dying and coming back to life with new life in a relationship with God. That's his mission. If you interpret Jesus any other way, you will fall away from him. You will be like the crowds. You'll be fickle in your spirituality. You'll fall away. But when we hang on to that message and that mission of Jesus, we will worship him rightly this this Easter season. Let's keep going. Let's move on from the crowds to the temple. From the crowds to the temple. And, And we move to verse 11. 
It says here, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Ultimately, his goal is to deal with this temple issue. Mark is very interested in Jesus and his critique of the temple and the temple establishment, religion, religious leaders, right? And, and, and what he's going to say is that they're, they're fruitless and useless. Look at verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And this the disciples heard. We learn later in the story that because Jesus said this to the fig tree, it withers up and it dies. And we're like, oh, poor little fig tree, right? Because Jesus... Because of Jesus, the fig, the, the, the fig tree withers and dies. Now, i got to tell you, this is one of the most controversial... I don't know how this is possible. This is one of the most controversial things that Jesus ever did. It's so controversial that people think that, that people added this to the Bible because they're like, there's no way that Jesus would destroy a little fig tree. Jesus is too sweet to do that, don't you know? They're like, how could Jesus, my Jesus would never destroy a fig tree? They say, scholars say, this is the only miracle of destruction that's recorded in the gospel. Every miracle Jesus ever did was for healing. He's never done a miracle of destruction. Of course, the scholars are wrong as usual. Can I get an amen? We hick pastors can see things they can't. I mean, Jesus did have the demons go into pigs and sent the pigs into a pond and the pigs died. Oh, poor, nobody's crying for the pigs. They cry for the fig tree. A few things on the death of this, this fig tree. Number one, this fig tree got to be used for Jesus' purpose, which anything in creation that's used for Jesus' purpose of message, of metaphor, that is a good thing. And there's no other fig tree in the world that can say, I got used by Jesus. This fig tree did. The second thing is this, is it's a reminder that everything in creation belongs to sovereign King Jesus. There is nothing in all of creation that Jesus doesn't look at and say, that is mine. Everything belongs to Christ. Everything I have, everything I am, my children belong to Jesus more than they belong to me. My wife belongs to Jesus more than she belongs to me. My, my church belongs to Jesus more than it belongs to me. My, my, the very chair you're sitting in belongs to Jesus more than it belongs to you. Jesus owns everything in creation. And we trust him to use it in a way that's going to glorify God and bring us satisfaction. And what he does with this fig tree is he teaches the disciples a lesson which we'll get to in a moment. But in the context, the reason why he does this is to demonstrate outwardly a truth about the temple, which is that the temple is fruitless and religion is useless in its ability. It's powerless in its ability to help us to worship God. And that's why we pick it up in verse 15. Watch this as he goes into the temple, one of my favorite parts of this whole chapter. It says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple... 
And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. I mean, this is great. He goes into the temple. He's throwing over tables. He's, he's knocking things over. He, didn't, he doesn't push anybody. It's very nice. He doesn't push anybody. Money's flying everywhere. Pigeons are flying everywhere. And the reason why he does this is he says that God's house has been made a den of robbers. Love that phrase, den of robbers. Literally a hiding place for thieves. The temples become a hiding place for thieves. How are they thieves? Well, the religious leaders had used the temple to buy and sell pigeons and animals for sacrifice at an, basically doing extortion. They were selling them at higher prices than they should have. So as pilgrims came in to worship God, they had to buy animals for sacrifice and, and, and they would do money exchanging and everything like that. And they charged too much. And they did all of this in the area of the temple that was for the Gentiles who were supposed to go into this area to pray to God in quiet and in peace. But instead, the religious leaders had taken that area of the temple. They had used it for their commerce, and they had become thieves hiding in the temple, doing it for religious reasons. Man, you know, human beings have been using religion to profit since the beginning of time, true or false? And what can happen is we can start equating religion to marketplace business. So they're extorting, they're distracting, whereas God's people and community should be attracting new people to God, new people to Jesus. They're distracting uh, people from coming to God so that they can profit off of religion That's why Jesus is overturning these tables and he's saying that God's house is not a hiding place for thieves. It's a place for people to worship. Now, applicationally, let me just say, Jesus came into this world. Here's his mission. Jesus came into this world to clean house. Jesus came into this world to remove obstacles that exist between us and God. And what that means is that Jesus comes to purify and to clean up and to transform. The good news is, is for us to come to church and be a part of God's people and to be God's temple and to be God's house, that doesn't mean I've got to, I've got to clean up my own life and then once i got my life cleaned up, then I can go worship Jesus. No, but the church is a place where we come up and we say, Jesus, I want you to clean up the mess that's in my life. And too many people use the church to come and hide in their sin, to, to in the name of grace or forgiveness or God's unconditional love. I'll just, I'll just live however I want, and I'll come, and I'll sing the songs, but we never fully give our life to Jesus so he can clean up the mess that is our life. And we all have to ask ourselves, am I a thief using the church to be a hiding place For me, or is the church community the place where I'm coming and I'm asking Jesus to change my life? That's a that's a big question for all of us. You know, I've been a pastor for a long time, man. Well, a decade. 
And I've met other pastors who use the church to hide from their real pain and their real issues. I've met parishioners who use the church to hide. I've seen churches where everybody seems so good. They seem so together. Have you ever been to one of those churches? I know it ain't here. Can I get an amen? You walk in, like, everybody's so together here. Nobody's vulnerable. No leader admits that they might have a weakness or that they might struggle to. Everybody's so perfect. And you go, my goodness, they really have it together. And it's in those very places people are hiding. They're not being vulnerable. They're not being accountable. They're not talking about their weaknesses and their issues and their temptations and their, and their sins. And they're hiding out. You are in the most dangerous place in the world because you are in a religious context. And a religious context is the very context where human beings run the furthest from God in. Well, at least I'm in church. I don't need to deal with my relationship with God. I don't need to deal with some experience. I'm here. I give. I'm doing it. I'm singing. God wants you to open up. God wants you to receive his grace, the type of grace that brings transformation and repentance. And God, help me. Help me to be a different man. Help me to grow up. Use the message of the cross not for me to go, well, he died for it. Help me to use the message of the cross that you hate sin, God. You hate it. And you love me. And in your love and in your hatred of sin, you're wanting to change my life. And you want to get ready for Easter week. You want a survivor's guide to Easter week. Here's what you do. You start getting honest with God. And even in a small church like this, some of you are hiding. And you're not being honest. And Satan is pulling you into isolation and darkness. Man, bring, bring your life to the light. Remember, when you celebrate Jesus' death, you're celebrating Jesus wanting to set you free from bondage, not to leave you there. That's the love of Christ. And anybody who uses the message of Christ to justify their sin is totally missing it. Totally missing it. Let this be a place where we're honest with God. You know, Jeremiah talked to the people of God. I know this is some really tough scripture, but it's so apropos. Jeremiah said something similar. He preached a similar sermon. We wonder why he's a weeping prophet. Nobody invited him over for lunch after he preached these sermons. But Jeremiah said to the people of God in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 and following, he says this to the people of God. Are you all hot? I'm hot. I am burning up. Y'all getting cold? Okay, that's good. We want everybody cold so you stay awake. I'm about to fall asleep. I'm sweating. I'm all like, okay. Listen to what Jeremiah said. He said, will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, Make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered! Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? 
Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. You know, when we go to Easter and we follow Jesus all the way to the cross and we're like that Roman centurion, what we have to remember is Jesus died for our adultery. Jesus died for our, for our false, to, to replace our false gods. Jesus died for our thievery. Jesus died to remove those things from our life, not so we could continue to walk in them. Jesus wants to heal us. So we learn from the crowds of Jesus and, the, and, the, and the, the popular acclaim of Jesus that we need to remember his mission is to die for our sins. We remember from the temple that Jesus dies to remove our sins from us. And now finally, let's, let's do one more section here. In Mark chapter 11, look at verse 20 and we get the message and the lesson of the fig tree. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, here it is, this is a key phrase, have faith in God. In other words, have faith in what God can do. Not necessarily what you can do, but what God can do. God can do some stuff. And you need to believe that God can do some stuff. And what is it that God can do? He says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. Jesus says, believe in God. And what's the practical application of trusting in God? Well, praying. In fact, the whole chapter is about praying. The crowds were praying. Jesus said that the temple is to be a house of prayer. And now here he says, pray. Have faith in God and pray. And what are we praying about? We're praying about mountain-sized problems. And we're all talking about mountain-sized problems. We talk about mountain-sized problems on Facebook. And we talk about mountain-sized problems on Twitter. We talk about mountain-sized problems on email. We're calling each other up. Let me tell you about my mountain-sized problem. We're talking about mountain-sized problems to ourselves while we're driving the car. Can I get an amen? We're talking about mountain-sized problems all the time. And you know what Jesus says? Maybe it's time for us to bring our mountain-sized problems to God. Maybe it's time to talk to God about it in prayer and bring these mountain-sized things that, that, that obscure God's glory from our life, that obscure our relationship with God and ask God to remove the mountains that are frankly too big for us to remove. Jesus says, pray, believe that God can do some stuff. If God wants to wither a fig tree... After I pray about it, he can. And if God wants to remove a mountain that's, a, uh, that's an obstacle between you and God, he can move that mountain. Now, it's very interesting. Let me close with this because I did some study because I'm working for you. And what I learned in working for you is that mountains in the Bible stand for two problems in our life. And this is very interesting. First of all, mountains always stand for an obstacle that gets in the way of the coming of the Lord. Mountains always, they're obstacles that get in the way of the coming of the Lord. What kind of mountains does God move for us? Those things that get in the way of the coming of the Lord. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 4. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain 
and he'll be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Now, you see that? The mountains we're praying about, it's not stuff that we want for ourselves or some kind of selfish need like, you know, I want a new motorcycle. In Jesus' name, move that mountain, God, you know. What he's talking about is the mountains are things, anything that's getting in the way between you and God. What is the mountain? What's that impossible thing that is keeping you from worshiping Jesus? What is the mountain that is moving? It's not a tornado in Jesus' name, amen? Oh, Lord, I remember that Sunday. Never again in Jesus' name. Okay, anyways. Mountains are anything that gets in the way of Jesus walking into your home, into your living room, into your heart, into your mind. Jesus walking into your church or your community. Mountains are things that keep the coming of the Lord from happening. Isaiah 40 is all about the coming of Jesus and all the mountains need to be moved and all of the unlevel places need to be made level. So the things you're praying about this week, what's keeping you? What's in between you and God right now? That's a mountain. God will move that mountain. But here's the other thing that, uh, that mountains are in the Bible. Uh, in the Bible, mountains are pride, human pride. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 2, listen to this. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 12 and following. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon lofty and lifted up against all the oaks of Bashan against all the lofty mountains and against all of the uplifted hills you see mountains is human pride Sometimes we get prideful or the pride of other people is getting in the way or, or, or arrogance or, or presumption. And what we need to do is take those mountains and pray about it. Give God our pride. Give God our contempt. Give God our arrogance. Give God our, our, our thinking that we can do life without him. We can build better worlds without God. We can take that lofty thought captive And say, God, remove that from my heart. Remove that spirit. Our whole culture is lofty in its thinking, isn't it? We're surrounded by these mountainous ideas that that we can do life without God. And it's a lie. One of my favorite passages on this very thing is Paul, uh, Paul talks about mountains and removing mountains in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Similar idea, which is lofty ideas. But he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses Four and following, and this is a refrigerator verse, man. This is good stuff. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and following. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What a great thing to do this week. Is that a great, that's a great thing to do. Every lofty thought that's telling you that God's not important, take captive. Pray about that mountain. Every prideful thought, take that and pray about it. And say, God, remove that idea from my home. Remove that idea from my life. Remove that mountain from my life. Every mountain you should pray about. You know, I think Jesus is telling us to believe God to be more powerful than he is, to lift our expectations on what God can move out of our lives and to pray believing, to be a people of prayer and conversation with God, 
to be praying to him by faith. Have faith in God, he says. Amen? All right, that's all the time I have. Let's pray. God, I thank you this morning because you sent your only son into this world to do things that are far bigger than political realities or to do things far bigger than what popular culture believes in, to do far bigger things than even even some of the things that personally bring great pain to our lives. God, you sent your son to make us right with you, to have peace with you. And we know that in having peace with you, we can be content whether we have little or much. Whether our circumstances are going right or whether they're going wrong, we can still have a peace that passes all understanding. And I pray right now for our church, for our lives, for our worship, that you would give us that peace. If you don't know Christ, I just invite you. You know, it's not about going to a temple. Jesus is the temple of God. And the way to walk into Jesus is by faith, to receive him into your life, to say to him, you are my savior. I bring my sin to you. I bring my pride, the mountains of my own lofty opinions. I bring those to you. I bring, I bring other people's sin that's hurt me. I bring those mountains to you, Jesus, and I ask that you would save me. Come into my life and be my savior. If you can say that to Jesus, then you are becoming a Christian even now. The message of the cross is powerful for those who believe. And let us stand there and let us say with the centurion, this is the son of God. By his stripes, we are healed. And I call everyone in this place to claim Christ for their life. He is the hope of deconstructing death. He is the hope of reconstructing life. And he gives new life to all who believe in him. He comes into our house of our life to clean up, to get rid of obstacles between us and God. And I'm grateful that I don't have to clean up my life to get right with God. I can let Jesus come in and clean up. But God, help us. God, help us from not using this place to be a thief in hiding, to be trying to steal love from you without walking in your justice to to steal grace from you without letting it have its work in our hearts and our minds change us may this be a church and a place of transformation and God as we are vulnerable with you as we bring our life and our brokenness into your light I pray you would bring healing God we all admit we are not what we should be I know I'm not but Lord I know you're taking us to places you're taking us Help us to worship your son this week, Father in heaven. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.